Viktor Frankl described the need for mankind to have hope. Something to hold on to through the darkest of times. He wrote a well-known book entitled Man's Search for Meaning. Man's Search for Meaning. He was a psychologist that suffered through the unimaginable existence of a German concentration camp during World War II. In his book, he recounts the story of a fellow prisoner who had lost all hope. This prisoner had shared with him a strange dream that he had had one day. In this dream, he was granted one wish, and this prisoner's wish was to know when the war would end for him, when his suffering would be over. He believed that he had received the answer of March 30th. Dr. Frankel notes that when this man had shared his dream with him, he was full of hope and optimism that that date would truly come to pass for his liberation. But as that date drew near, the prisoners received news that it was very unlikely for the war to end anytime soon. And the date that this man had set his hope on would certainly pass with him still imprisoned in that horrible place. On March 29th, that prisoner became suddenly and severely ill. On March 30th, he became delirious and lost consciousness. On March 31st, he was dead. And to all outward appearances, he had died of typhus. But Frankel concludes in his book, But those who know how close the connection is between the state of mind of a man and the state of immunity of his body will understand that the sudden loss of hope can have a deadly effect. Any attempt to restore man's inner strength had first to succeed in showing him some future goal. Losing hope is a terrible thing. It could be a deadly thing. Suffering can cause us to lose sight of hope. What is the Christian's only hope in life and death, the catechism asks. How does Peter in this letter call Christian exiles to live while they face suffering and hardship and persecution in this life? How do we live in a God-honoring way through the hardships of life? Our passage will tell us this morning that setting our hope fully on his grace, will lead us to godly living. Setting our hope fully on his grace will lead us to godly living. Let's look at God's word beginning in 1 Peter 1 and verse 1. This is God's word to us, his people. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles, chosen exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied over and over to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, 
to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's kept, it's reserved, it's protected in heaven for you. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith. He's guarding you through your faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire. That faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. At the revelation of Jesus Christ one day. Though you have not seen him. You love him. Though you do not now see him. You believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. And filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith. The salvation of your souls. He's saying that salvation. Will be accomplished. Verse 10. Concerning this salvation. The prophets who prophesied in the past about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things so wonderful that angels long to look into them. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, You also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Let's ask for his help as we look at this text together this morning. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things from your law, from your word. That we would see you magnified. That we would know what Peter is urging us toward this morning that we would embrace it with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. If you look carefully at our text this morning, verses 13 through 16, you will see that it is controlled by two main commands. Based on the truths that we just read, that Peter's been explaining from verses 3 through 12. The first command in this entire letter, we've not been told to do anything yet until verse 13. The command there is set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The second command in our English translations doesn't jump out at us quite as quickly because of the way that the English is translated, but it's there in verse 15. It says, be holy in all of your conduct. The command reveals a process of how our God intends to change us. More and more and more into his likeness, even while we're under that pressure of suffering in this lifetime. So first, our first point, be filled with hope in his grace. Our passage begins with a therefore. Now, if we're reading our Bibles well, that means we have to look back at what is preceding that word. 
what is preceding this verse. How can these believers Peter is writing to live as God's exiles while they're suffering? What must they know? What must they do? And then how can we live in a God-honoring way, even through the hardships of life? Peter's been explaining that we must first anchor ourselves in what Christ has done for us. Remember, we spent four weeks looking at these 12 verses. Seeing that statement after statement after statement is telling us all that Christ has provided us, all that will come to us through him. These are all gospel realities. In verse 13, then, we have this first command or imperative. It follows an extended series of statements of fact, or what we would say in the English, indicatives. You could sum up what Peter has been rehearsing, and we want to hear it as building. He's saying in verse 1, since God has chosen you, He took the initiative to bring you to himself. Verse 3, since God caused you to be born again to a living and ongoing rock-solid hope. Since God is keeping an inheritance for you that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Verse 5, since God is protecting you through faith so that you won't forfeit or give up that inheritance. Verses 6 and 7, since God is refining your faith by his choice of these trials so that you will one day receive praise and glory and honor. Verse 8, since you are immersed in all the abundance of love and faith and joy in Christ. Verses 10 and 12, since prophets and angels are on their tiptoes eager, even desperate to observe all that God's grace is doing in your life. Therefore, hope fully in that grace, in that kind of a God. In these four verses, we're being exhorted to live godly lives by setting our hope in him. But the Christian walk is so different from any other religion. And I want you to see this very clearly It does not make commands or demands of us without first grounding these commands in the realities of what Christ has done for us and in us. Do you see that here in this text? He's saying, look at who you are in Christ. Now, once we have meditated on that thoroughly, now you must live a certain way. Pastor and theologian Edmund Clowney writes, the imperatives of Christian living always begin with the idea, the concept of therefore. Peter does not begin to exhort these Christian pilgrims until he celebrated the wonders of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. So often we run to that second step and say, well, what must I do? And the apostles, the writers of the New Testament say, no, you start with who you are who God has made you to be, and then live that out. The therefore points to all the gospel truth that has come before, and we must not rush through that. So here's the command with that setting. Set your hope fully on his approaching, his coming grace. I want you to see that hope is the controlling attitude or feeling that we're to reach out after, we're to strive for. It's a command. Set your hope, your confidence, your expectation 
Peter's told us that one of the first reasons we're to praise our God there at the beginning in verse 3 is according to his great mercy. He's caused us to be born again to a living, an abiding, an active hope. At the end of verse 21, we see again through Jesus, we are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Do you see how he's boxing this in, this command? This one command is going to control what comes after. We have to set our hope in God before we can rightly obey him. Peter says, set your hope on grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You've been shown incredible grace. But more grace is still to come. And you've only begun to taste it. You're to long for the fulfillment of it when Jesus comes again. This word, the grace that will be brought, is a divine passive. He is the guarantor of that grace to come. Hope you used here involves the idea of assurance that what is hoped for is certain to come to pass. It's a confidence that it will come. And think of it, it's a guarantee because it's based on something that's already happened in the past. It's not like you're thinking about the Super Bowl and you've picked a team you like and you say, I hope they win. The point spread is in their favor. They're supposedly the better team. I have a good reason to hope in that. This goes far, far beyond that. You see, our hope in the future of what Jesus is coming to do is based on what he did in the past. He was raised from the dead. That's the beginnings of all he's going to accomplish. It's a living and abiding hope. How is Peter encouraging these believers struggling in this life, tempted to think that perhaps this Christianity thing isn't really worth it? They're like that prisoner. They're saying, maybe, maybe this isn't what I thought it was. Maybe it would be just better to go along to get along. Why stand out if it's going to be so difficult and painful? Why kind of seek almost the suffering? He says, set your hope fully on that future grace. Now, what moments in our lives reflect just a little bit of what it means to place our hope in things that are to come, that will bring us great joy once they arrive? What things do we eagerly anticipate that help shape our thoughts and decisions as we await them? Perhaps for you, you're awaiting or anticipating a long weekend or a vacation or a holiday or spring break. Maybe you're going to fly home or Go somewhere to see family or friends or just be able to take some time off and relieve yourself of the stress that you're under currently. And you know you have several things that have to get finished before you go. Maybe there are even things you don't really enjoy doing, but you know that if you just buckle down, discipline yourself and get those done, your trip will be all the more enjoyable. Your anticipation of the future helps inform your present now. Or picture that couple that is engaged and they're eagerly anticipating their wedding day, their future life together. 
there are lots of little tasks that have to be completed. Figuring out all the details of the invitations, the food, at the receptions, a million other little details can be overwhelming. The anticipation of that coming event, though, makes all the other little chores worthwhile. They give meaning. They inform all those chores of the true purpose of why you're doing them. And think of it, as God's people, we are waiting for Jesus, who we're told is the bridegroom of his church, to return for us. We wait with anticipation. It will be worth it when we see him. So we must hope fully. That means without reserve, with undivided confidence. It means that we're to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, the originator of our faith. The finisher, the one who enables us to persevere in faith. What do you tend to set your hope in when things are difficult in your life? What do you kind of put an anchor onto? Don't we often try to exert more control if we just get more organized and busier? Then we can make it through this rough patch. Or we put our hope in our status or education or our financial security it's very upsetting when those things are threatened or maybe instead of grasping for more control it's easier for you or more natural for you to give in to worry anxiety or fear perhaps when you're facing difficulty in life you fixate on the problems rehearsing them over and over in your mind peter says set your hope on his grace instead now peter's commanding us to have a certain feeling a specific desire focus how do we do this how do we stoke the fire of our hope in god he gives us two ways first we're to think actively peter says that we're to set our hope fully on his approaching grace by Preparing our minds for action. Stirring up hope on his grace starts in our minds. We must fix our minds on the truth in two ways. First, we're to think actively. You may have a note in your Bible that the original Greek says, gird up the loins of your mind. Men in the first century and still even to this day, they wear long robes in the Middle East. And if they're going to engage in any kind of strenuous activity where they need to move quickly or move with some sort of strength, such as going out to battle or running or doing some field work, they had to gather up those long robes from the bottom, bring them up to their waist, and tuck them in a sash or a belt. They had to prepare themselves in order to make sure they're unencumbered for that task. Peter may even have in his mind a reference to the Exodus when God tells his people to be prepared to leave Egypt at a moment's notice. He's telling us, be proactive. Choose what you meditate on. Take decisive action. Don't just go with the flow. Don't just be moved about through your day as whatever comes, that's, that's what you'll give into to think through. Secondly, he says, think clearly the second way we stir up hope in our hearts is to think soberly or clearly we're to be sober-minded 
Paul says something very similar in Colossians 3, 1 and 2. And notice how he roots it into who we are again. He says, since then you have been raised with Christ. You have new life in him. That's your identity. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Are you setting your mind on things that don't have any lasting value for eternity? Are you distracting your mind from truth and God's word by filling your time with entertainment, social media, politics, or some other temporal concern? Now, please hear me carefully. It's easy for a, a, a preacher to say, well, you know, entertainment's wrong and TV's wrong, social media is all evil. That's not what we're saying at all. What Peter is saying is, are you distracting yourself? Those things can be fine. They can be used even for the Lord. But are you using them in a way that helps pull you towards him? That helps you think on him? Or do they kind of blind you? Kind of help you get acclimated to this world even more? Make you think of him less because you're thinking of here more. That's the question. Do you know which things in this life tend to pull your mind away from him? Do you know your own heart and your own struggles in this way? We're not even talking about outright sinful things. They can even be the normal daily concerns of life. You have to fight through how you think about those things. Are they becoming ultimate to you? Are you thinking Godward through those things? These instructions here in verse 13 demonstrate that every Christian, no matter how mature or immature, has to keep working at being sober-minded. It's so easy to drift, to let lesser thoughts and feelings control us. Our work as Christians is not over once we're saved. It's only then that the true work toward godly discipline in thought, feeling, and action begin. It's only then that we're given the engine to do that work. As we rehearse who we are in Christ. The point is that hope or confidence in God's grace. Will not become a reality to you. Without disciplined thinking. Thinking in a way that produces godly hope. Requires intentionality. Concentration. Sustained effort. You have to practice thinking the truth. Correcting wrong thoughts when you identify them. An illustration came to my mind this past week as I was working through the process of discipline with one of my children. We were talking through how we ended up at the point of correction after we had gone through a few steps. Now, I got permission last night to use this story from my kids. I want to make sure I've asked their permission. But this particular child of mine was upset at the moment that discipline was received. So we started working through why. Why are you upset? Why are you angry with a series of questions? Well, why did you disobey? Did you not know that you were doing wrong? Well, no, I I did. Then why are you upset that you got in trouble? Was this unfair? Was it unexpected? Was it unclear? No, but I'm still angry that I got in trouble. So I said, why? Why? You knew you were disobeying, you did it anyway, 
And then you're upset when you received consequences. What's going on in your heart? That's where the conversation is headed. The answer was, isn't it that you just want your way? And you've told yourself in your mind that mom and dad's decision is not as good as what you want to do right now. You were thinking that you would be happier choosing your way, and now you're upset that you got corrected for it. When we got all the way down into the root of how he was thinking, that unlocked the discussion. That began to open up the conversation. But what stood out to me in the conversation is how much I need that same correction. I choose to sin because I want what I want based on what I've come to believe, which is so often not true. I believe this will make me happier than obeying him. Our hearts are deceitful and desperately sick. We're not sober-minded. We think we know what will make us most happy or gratified in the moment. We're so short-sighted. We're not sober-minded or clear-thinking. We feed that passion, which then leads to wrong action. One author summarizes, Peter points us to the source of our sin, our thoughts. Every sinful action we engage in is the result of a sinful thought that fed a sinful desire. If we want to set our hope fully on grace, we must deal with our sin at the source. There's a pathway here that he's describing. The pathway to wrong actions we discovered started all the way back with wrong thinking. We think that we want, what we want will lead us to this fulfillment. Our world is filled with all kinds of lies like this. It's popular now today to say embrace your own truth. What on earth is that? My feelings don't tell the truth very often at all unless they are controlled by the word of God. We hear this over and over, no matter if it's just the simple disobedience of a child or the choices of an adult or the message that we hear over and over in a lot of entertainment today that you need to be true to yourself, no matter where that might lead. Can I tell you that Peter is making the point that that is dangerous. That's not the way to go. Where are we to find hope when we're discouraged? How do you fight anxiety, lust, or pride, or any other kind of sin? You have to start by saturating your mind with the truth of what Christ has done for you and in you, that he is better. You have to get to know your God. This doesn't mean just taking in facts. You have to know what he's like, what he wants to do for you and in you, what he's done already for you. You must stop listening to yourself. Rehearse all of the problems that you're currently facing with relationships, with coworkers, with your boss. You're to become well-versed in the truth cannot meditate on the things in this life that you do not want or like but instead immerse yourself in the truth 
Matthew Henry writes, the main work of a Christian lies in the right management of his heart and mind. The apostles, Peter's first direction is to gird up the loins of the mind. Those who distinguish themselves with this kind of hope have learned to cultivate a healthy mind. To put it simply, if God is to have your heart, he must first have your mind. If you're going to set your hope fully on Jesus' approaching grace, Peter says, think actively. Think clearly on what he's done for you. One very practical application for us as we're working through this study of 1 Peter would be go back to verses 1 through 12 and begin memorizing these gospel truths. Memorize these verses that he rehearses for us. Focus on his grace to us in Jesus. This is how you know the love of the Father. Peter's laid it out right here for us. Perhaps you could summarize those statements in your own words, identifying what he's done. Call them to your mind regularly. Maybe as you're headed to work, when you're headed home, or when you're with your kids and you are tempted toward impatience, or a friend, or you're facing cultural change and you're fearful or anxious. You could also take verses 1 through 12 and pray through them, thanking God for each particular aspect of his grace, thanking that these are rock-solid promises and then go back through again asking god to help you grow in grace by understanding them and being controlled by these truths main command here is to set your hope fully on his grace by thinking actively and clearly peter's first command set your hope fully in god his second be holy in all your conduct Now, it seems best to see this command and the following command later in verse 17 as flowing out of the command to hope in his grace. Again, there's a logical progression seeing how God intends to change us from the inside out. It's not just here's a list of things that you do, here's a list of things that you don't do. As we think and meditate on the truth, it fuels and informs our heart's affections. So thinking leads to feeling which then shapes how we behave and live. Thinking leads to feeling, which leads to doing. The main verb in these three verses is found in verse 15. In verse 14, Peter tells us what we are to avoid. He's saying, don't be like this, like you used to be. But instead, in verse 15, what we're to be like. And then in verse 16, why we're to be like that. We're first to remember our family identity. Peter uses this analogy of the father and his children several times here at the beginning of his letter. Remember, he started as obedient children. Started his section highlighting God's work. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Our Father called us to life. Verse 17 is going to continue this analogy. And if you call on him as father. He's putting us in this relationship. And the picture is this. You're supposed to be, you're expected to look like your parents. He's saying, look like your father. 
J.I. Packer highlights this when he writes, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child, of having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that is distinctively Christian is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. That relationship is to control how we think, how we feel, how we live. Peter's not calling them to obey a command without again locating that command within their new status as children. How did you become a child of God? You see, he's not calling us to obey again in our own strength. But obedience is essential to the relationship. In John 14, 15, Jesus tells us that if we love him, we will keep his commands. Second, we're to rejoice, I'm sorry, reject your former ignorance. Peter knows that the Christian walk is neither passive nor easy. We can relate to that. Ungodly desires still hold sway in our hearts. Notice he says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't let that press you into its mold again. You have to fight that temptation. It's going to be there. We're still regularly tempted to fall back into that old sinful way of living and thinking. To conform. We all still tend toward a a natural, fleshly, temporal mindset. Temporal desires or behaviors. And every human being conforms to one pattern or another. It can be kind of entertaining to watch a young person grow up and say, well, I'm not conforming to that way of thinking. I'm going to be my own person. And if you've lived at all a little while, you know there is no individual identity, really, right? Even the nonconformists find other nonconformists to be like, right? We all are conforming to something. It's just what are we choosing to be conformed to? Think about how fads go in and out of style. You just choose your fad, right? You just choose your lane. But usually there's somebody there that is in your mind that's influencing that kind of a decision. I mean, if you've ever looked back at your own high school yearbook, you laugh, your children really laugh, at how dated and silly the styles looked back then. So why did you choose to look like that? Because everybody else did. Everybody else chose that hairstyle or to wear those brands of clothing, right? Consider how people conform to styles in their home decoration choices. You choose a color that is very popular today, but in 20 years it won't be so fashionable and somebody will want to paint over it. And maybe they'll choose a color that was popular 30 years ago, right? Peter's saying that even believers tend to fall back into sinful patterns and desires. Paul's echoing these same thoughts In Ephesians 4, he says, you are to put off your old self. You have to keep doing that, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, feelings, passions, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Again, you have to think differently. 
and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Third, respond to his call with holiness. In verse 15, we're to respond based on our calling, his effectual calling to life. As he who called you is holy, you also then be holy in all your conduct. Do you see any hope in that high of a standard? We read verse 16, be holy as I am holy. And we're like, wow, how? how? Well, he just told you he's already made you holy. You're a saint, a holy one in him. There's hope here because that calling does not just mean that this is God's intention. It also conveys the idea of God's power of bringing people from darkness to light. He's made you a peculiar possession. He's made you a kingdom of priests to God. He's made you new. He's created life where there was death. It's his life that's brought us to life. So therefore, it's also his power that will enable us to make progress and even want to be like him in holiness. What does it mean to be holy as he is holy? Very simply, it means becoming like Jesus. It doesn't mean we'll reach that status of being set apart and unique over all creation. It means letting God's uniqueness start to filter in and through my life as I think and feel and obey. It means that we're reserved for God. We're set apart to him. This is made clear by the contrast Peter makes between verses 14 and 15. Not this this don't give in you are ignorant you didn't know what reality was you had no concept of eternity you had no understanding of what a right relationship with god looked like and therefore you followed all of your passions and you conformed then in your behavior and lifestyle to live a certain way he's saying don't do that fill your mind with him set your hope then inside your feeling your desire your affections for him And you will start to look like him. Peter's going to flesh out what this means as we continue through this letter. So we'll return to that in time. But what is Peter, what answer does he provide to believers who needed hope in a world that was determined to stand against them? How do you counsel your own heart when you're discouraged or confronted with a temptation to sin this week? How will you encourage another Christian brother or sister who needs help pursuing him? What we see in our text is that meditating on gospel realities fills us with gospel hope that leads to godly living. Do you see the process in the text? Peter's given us clear instructions. First, we're to meditate on the gospel. Therefore, after you've thought well through these things, After we've saturated our minds with the truth of his grace. Second, we're to set our hope on his still more coming grace. And then thirdly, we're to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ. We're to choose to live as those who are reserved for him. The psalmist says, Psalm 147, 11. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. In those who hope. In his steadfast love. Let's pray.
gracious God and Father, we rejoice even as we're reminded that we can call you Father. That that title reminds us again of who we are as your children. We are not our own. In ignorance, we chose our own way, but we've been made new. We've been brought into the family of God. You've caused us to be born again to a living hope, to something beyond this life, to something that's more, more valuable, more desirable, more worthwhile. Stir up our hope fully on your grace. As we think of all that your grace has accomplished, may we continue to look forward and strive toward and reach out and grasp for the hope, for the promises that are to come in Jesus Christ. Lord, this ties all the way into our understanding that we are chosen exiles in this world, living in a different way. Not just as other religions do by cleaning up the outside, but from the inside out. You're calling us to think different and desire different and then behave different. Help us to look more and more like our dear Savior, Jesus Christ. By his grace, in Jesus' name, amen.